0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on catch up to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, red weather warning, red alert for the planet as the UK swelters in record-breaking temperatures. We'll be getting a take from Australian firefighter and climate activist Cam Walker, who'll be comparing notes with Extinction Rebellion co-founder Claire Farrell. Before that, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper edited by Hadith Matharu. We report without fear or favour and hold the rich and the powerful to account because our funding comes (coughs) from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the byline times so please subscribe if you can we are not told to say by any press baron or oligarch you'll get subscription details at bylinetimes.com our newsbreaking website that's at bylinetimes.com and if you have already subscribed thank you so as we experience record temperatures in the UK, let's reflect on a moment when it seems the climate emergency has arrived on our doorstep. Cam Walker is a climate activist. He can, he's campaigns coordinator for Friends of the Earth in Australia and a volunteer firefighter as well. Claire Farrell is a co-founder and still very much involved with Extinction rebellion so cam let me speak to you first because some of the extreme weathers that we're experiencing at the moment in the uk there's there, it's extremes of weather are something that you in australia have had to deal with over recent years
1: yes absolutely uh, australia is a continent of extremes but the extremes have got worse and worse under the influence of human-induced climate change so droughts floods Fires, heat waves, and cyclones have all been getting worse.
0: And I mentioned that you are a volunteer firefighter. So just tell me some of the incidents that you've attended.
1: Well, I became a firefighter because I'm an ecologist and I've got a special interest in the mountain forests of the southeast of Australia. And I just realised that year after year, I've seen these forests that are fire adapted and are fire resistant, but were being burnt more and more frequently. And I decided I need to do my little bit to um, contribute to protecting those forests. So it was it was basically an act of climate grief that drove me to become a firefighter. Um, I fought fires all through the summer of 2019-20, which is kind of similar to the summer that Western Europe is having at present. And we had fires that burnt entire landscapes you know killed billions of animals and burnt millions and millions of hectares and they were so big they generated their own weather and they're simply uncontainable in those circumstances you can't actually fight those fires all you can do is basically try and hold them to a boundary line and hope for rain and this is really the as they sometimes call it the pyrosine this is the era that we have entered as a result of our overuse of fossil fuels
0: And yet, as I understand it, and feel free to correct me about any ignorance I show about Australian politics, until recently, at least anyway, you had a prime minister who was wedded to coal production, wedded to fossil fuel production.
1: Absolutely, and the community has been slowly getting angrier and angrier about that. But basically what happened was we had nine years under the federal coalition. So uh, in Australia, the the coalition, which is a combination of the Liberal and National parties, are kind of like the UK Tories. Uh, they're on the conservative side of politics. Our prime minister was famous for taking a lump of coal into parliament and saying, this is coal, don't be afraid of it. They were wedded to the fossil fuel industry where the largest or the second largest exporter of liquid natural gas on the planet We export vast volumes of coal and people just had enough. And we had a federal election in uh, May this year and it was phenomenal. Australia voted for climate action. We have a federal Labor Party, which is uh, coming on a platform of strong climate action. It's not enough, but it's certainly a, a pleasant change to have a government that actually understands climate change rather than opposes any action every step of the way. The Greens party had their best ever showing and have something like 12 senators in the upper house. And we have a whole range of climate independent, So independent candidates that ran on platforms of climate action, gender equality, and social inclusion and anti-corruption. And we have them across the Eastern seaboard now, and they're going to be really important in the new federal election. And so the land the landscape, the political landscape has changed profoundly in the last couple of months and that's a direct result of the Australian people understanding the severity of the climate crisis and their anger at our previous leadership's unwillingness to act at the scale that's required.
0: Yeah, until that election in May, the Prime Minister was Scott Morrison, who I suppose was an Australian counterpart to Boris Johnson in the UK, to Donald Trump in the United States. He was a A a populist, a, a Rupert Murdoch endorsed populist at that and whose commitment to combating climate change was at very best, at very best, skin deep. Yes,
1: he was. And the nice bit of detail there is the Murdoch press in Australia backed Scott Morrison and the Liberal Party to the absolute ilk. They threw everything at supporting him and demonising the Greens and attacking the Labor Party, and it didn't work. Now, the Murdoch press have had a stranglehold on Australian politics for decades, and a really good part of the detail of the election is that power is now waning because we know that the Murdoch press uses that power to limit and block action on climate Climate change, so there really is a, a groundswell. It's like the gravitational centre of Australian politics has now shifted, and to a very large degree, that's surrounded the desire to see climate action.
0: So, you do think that, as a whole, the Australian population is now engaged with the battle against climate change, acknowledges the reality of the climate emergency, and is willing to support tough measures for from politicians to challenge it.
1: Absolutely. Poll after poll shows that the actual outright climate deniers are a tiny portion of the population, well under 10%. Most people understand it or fully understand it that we need to take radical action. And that was demonstrated in the May federal election.
0: Claire, let me bring you in. Do you take some cheer from what we've heard from Cam in Australia?
2: Oh, yeah, obviously. Uh, any uh, Anything that brings uh, a sense of collective force for justice against the murdoch um empire is um good news for people who are concerned about the climate totally and you know the first time i heard about about that situation in detail was really at the beginning of um extinction rebellion um speaking to uh somebody who's been associated with our campaign for quite a long time donica the journalist and um and he described that and then he also described to me like look you know the same things happened in in Britain, you'll notice if you look back over history, uh, I'm, you know, I'm in my 30s. So, you know, most of my life, it seems that the the politics has been has been overshadowed in this country by certain people in the media. And he's a he's a he's a prime uh, character in that in that scenario of sort of capture.
0: Yes, I'm not in my 30s, Claire. I have to <laughs> Um, it, it it's kind of quite painful to me to see contemporaries of mine reminiscing about the 1976 heat wave. And I don't think those people mm. are necessarily representative of people of my generation as a whole. But nevertheless, these memes going around social media, these commentaries around, well it was just summer we had a lovely time we had lots of ice creams we took our clothes off and you know and and splashed about in the rivers why don't why can't we just get on and do the same and enjoy these rare hot days in the united kingdom as as if everything we've learned in the years since then counts for nothing
2: yeah i mean i I've, i was on a i was on a like a daytime tv show um last week and they, did, they brought up a, a map from the past with similar temperatures where everything looked kind of normal. And the same temperatures now over a map of Britain saying, why is it painted red? Why does it look like Mars? And if you look at the global uh, maps, then it it has turned red, (laughs) you know, like the the temperature is massively changing and these things are getting more frequent and they are getting more ferocious and they are getting worse and more people will die. And, you know, we're we're expecting huge uh, public health issues um, this week in Britain from from this rise in temperatures. And um, it wasn't that long ago when um, the head of the WHO, Um, held up a a statement from Extinction Rebellion doctors, which um, they'd been sent and and asked to support XR because they were campaigning for climate on a public health argument. And um, and their their statement basically said, imagine a human body. Think about what happens when that becomes one or two or three degrees, too hot or too cold, and you're in serious shit, right? And that's that's the same for the planetary body. We can't have these fluctuations, even though they sound like small numbers, we can't we can't be having them because they're very, very serious to to public health. And to me that felt like a really useful way to try and get the public um, you know, to understand the, the reality of, of what these what these things mean. Because often I think our we struggle to communicate what's happening, not only because of the media, as we've just been talking, not only being captured to vested interests, but also playing to a, a very low um, level of, of, of understanding of, of science and of, and of the, the basic stuff that people need to grasp. Um, but if you compare it to something around public health, everyone understands bodily health. Everyone has a body. Everyone goes to the doctors. Everyone, you know, has has this experience of, of trying to uh, stay healthy and trying to stay alive. And so, for me, that you know, that comparison is is extremely hel- helpful. And then. On the other side, I think you can also think about the social body as a body that needs to be kept healthy, and that is also um, extremely unwell at the moment frankly um, so you know you th- can think of uh, of the of the broader society as, as a thing that needs to be kept healthy and alive and so so our um, you know one of one of the least understood or least known demands of extinction rebellion is for a participatory uh, democracy for a citizens' assembly to deal with the climate crisis, but all, and the ecological crisis, but also for me, there's a there's a bigger vision, really, of a of a deeply participatory culture, which is then healthy and inclusive and able to bring people together to to make decisions that benefit the the majority of people. And obviously, the people who are making the decisions at the moment really don't have. Um, the best interests of the average person, um, always at the forefront of their mind, they're incredibly um, like steeped in vested interests, some of them are basically totally corrupt. Um, But, but at best, you would say, a lot of them have vested interests at heart, which, which are not the same concerns that an ordinary citizen would have. So similar to in Australia, you know, you've got people who were going into parliament holding a piece of coal saying there's nothing to be scared of. Look at this piece of coal. But actually like they were interested in keeping the coal industry alive more than they were interested in keeping the public alive. Um, and so it's the, the time of reckoning I think is, is, is here. The heat wave is, is, is telling us all very clearly, like we're in the crisis. We've already gone into it. There's no going back. Arguably we we've started to address this far, far too late and, um, we're we're in deep shit basically. Um, but hopefully like this 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 moment can be a real a real wake-up call. And I'll just say one more thing that, that I've just been sent loads of articles this morning about um a case in the High Court in this country, which has been brought by several groups of environmental kind of legal campaigners to uh demand that there's a scrutiny on the net zero policies of of the government and the the high court has ruled that the government does have to now show prove that the plans that they have for net zero are feasible to get net zero and that's also like an amazing um an amazing thing to arrive at a time where we're all sweltering in this heat and we can sort of viscerally understand the climate crisis
0: Yeah, I think it's worth just exploring that for a moment. I know that the Good Law Project, who we've featured previously on the Byland Times podcast, they've established, along with a group of other people, that the government's net zero strategy is unlawful, essentially because it contains so few details it's a it's simply a target but with without any flesh on the bones of that target so under the climate change act you know that is a law in this country the government's got to hit net zero by 2050 but it doesn't say how it's going to do that. So the success of this court case has been to successfully challenge the government to say, well, OK, this is in law now that we've got to achieve this. Tell us how you're going to do it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, for me, what's what's difficult in speaking about this is that a net zero um, target of 2050, I think, is an utter catastrophe. It's still like committing to... A total, total, total disaster. Particularly when you take in mind Britain's historic responsibilities, um, the fact that we are an extremely wealthy nation, we've got we've got an enormous amount of um, supporting the rest of the world that we should be doing because we're so privileged. Um, we've we've got a lot to answer for, frankly. Um, and so 2050 for me is not a fair target for britain and it's and it's and it's not a good target for us as a global community but nonetheless if that's what you're aiming at then you have to look very seriously about like the energy throughput of our economy um and what is actually realistically going to bring that down and and not allow the kind of bullshit accounting which has gone on which is like okay so the emissions of the things that we consume come from China so they can be responsible for them. We don't have to be responsible for our consumption. We just have to be responsible for our production. Obviously, we've offshored our production. We don't like to take into account in our, in our government like the emissions from transport, from aviation, from things that we can just sort of say loosely are sort of off of our shores. So there's all kinds of like dodgy accounting that goes on in terms of trying to paint a pretty picture of where we are um, as a nation. But also, if you look in, in terms of legal challenges, what I think is, has really gone massively under the radar in the, in the last few years was this fight over the expansion of Heathrow Airport. So if you're in a climate crisis, and you desperately need to reduce emissions, it is not a good idea to build new runways. That's pretty obvious, like a child could tell you that, right, if you ask them for policy advice. Um but there's been a massive um, tussle, as everybody's probably aware, over the expansion of Heathrow. Um, I myself and a, and, a, and a bunch of other people before we launched Exile actually went on hunger strike over the expansion of Heathrow Airport. Then there was a litigation brought with Friends of the Earth and some friends of ours from a, from a legal charity called Plan B to, um, to try and fight the expansion as um, a government policy. Um, knowing that as it had become a government policy, it's very hard to to prevent that from then happening. Um, So they won that case in the High Court. And afterwards, the government said, we're not going to fight this. We're going to leave it. And I think some people heard that and thought, oh, great, like the government aren't going to fight. But the truth is that actually Heathrow could fight on much better terms because they're a private company. So they fought and they brought loads of lawyers and they went to the Supreme Court and they won somehow. And the argument in court was about whether or not the transport secretary had considered net zero whilst writing a a, a significant policy like this. The repercussions of losing that case in the high court were very significant because you could imagine that there could be a sort of spiraling of like other cases Then saying, well, you didn't consider the net zero target in this policy or this road building policy or this other policy or this other policy. And so in many ways, it feels like, um, you know, it was, it was a devastating uh, thing to watch that um go through the Supreme Court and then for that litigation that had previously won to then lose against Heathrow Airport um, a, a barrister that, that we that we worked with quite closely um, Tim Crossland went and did um, contempt of court on the Supreme Court he broke the embargo on the um, outcome of that case and uh, then was brought into court and was was charged with, with contempt of court because he felt that it was totally um, unacceptable for one court to have found um, negligence on the part of the government for not considering net zero and then for some of that evidence to seemingly be sort of left out of the consideration of this case, which then was successful on behalf of of Heathrow. So it's, you know, even when you're sort of wrestling in the courts with these kind of like what feel like quite discreet kind of um, Parts of this of this of this big issue, um, you can see that the the justice system is just kind of going around in circles with it. Um, it's I've, I mean I find it I find it extraordinary to to watch, and I'm interested I guess in kind of when is the bigger picture going to become clear through through our institutions, and when are people going to start to really understand that. You know the nature of seeking justice in this um, scenario. It is going to result in in things that require changes in law and recognition. Um, you know within our criminal justice system that if you obliterate life on Earth, if you cause mass mass death, then you know that surely that should be uh, illegal, right? But we're apparently we we're, we're sort of not. We're not there yet. <laughs> it's it, I find, I mean, I just find it really staggering. But um, but yeah, this this stuff goes goes on and on and on. People fighting on the streets, fighting in the courts, <laughs> fighting through the through the through the NGO sector. There's people in the civil service fighting fighting for this stuff, and um, yet you know, here here we all are.
0: Hmm. Camp. Let me ask you. Given the power of the Murdoch press, particularly in Australia where I think I'm right in saying Murdoch owns 70% of the print print journalism. I could be wrong with that figure, but I've heard that quoted uh, on on our podcast before. How did it come that people were able to educate themselves and successfully overturn the climate change deniers and overturn Scott Morrison? I think...
1: It was a multitude of things. I think that uh, the Murdoch press just became so overtly partisan. Um, it was like they confused news and opinion and people could see through that. And there has been a backlash and there has been a decline, particularly in the national paper, which is called The Australian, which has had a very strong climate denial line for many years. I think people have just got sick of that very overt politics in what is meant to be a news service. Um and I think people can understand the difference between opinion and news and they get annoyed when, when. News owners pretend that people don't understand that. I think the rise of social media, which is very much a double-edged sword, because there's so much misinformation is being circulated, but also it does allow peer-to-peer uh, news reporting to be shared. Um, and I think also the community just got sick of the inaction, and business is now largely ahead of government, and that changes the gravitational centre of a country when people want to invest in renewables and storage and not fossil fuels. And then the government scrambled to catch up. So it was a multitude of things that happened in the landscape. But also, I think that we are just experiencing the impacts of climate change, and it became harder and harder to deny that. We often say that delay is the new denial. So a lot of people start to talk about, well, what are we going to do in 2050? And we keep saying, no, it's what we do now through to 2030 and 2035 that actually matters in terms of the level of climate change we'll experience later on. Um, So I I think that people just got sick of waiting. Business got on with it. The unions got on with it. The green groups got on with it, and as did the community. And now governments are playing catch up.
0: It's very interesting insights. And I, I was talking about Australia over the weekend with a friend of mine. And obviously, Australia has great mineral wealth, and hence the extraction from the ground of fossil fuels. But Australia has fantastic weather i mean am i being naive to think that australia has got the potential to become self-sufficient and maybe even an exporter of energy through solar power alone
1: Oh, absolutely. There's huge plans for what they call the 700% uh, campaign, which is that we can export, we can create and export 700% of the energy we use domestically because, of course, we have growing economies in Southeast Asia. A big focus is so-called green hydrogen uh, as an export industry. We have some concerns about that. You know, we see the need to put limits on growth rather than endless growth. Uh, So we're not part of that particular kind of line of thinking. In the environment movement, but certainly we can meet all our domestic needs very, very easily. We can start to rebuild our manufacturing sector because, of course, under free or free trade arrangements, we offshore, as Claire said, you know, all our manufacturing to places like China and then pretended it had no carbon impact. Uh, we've centralised the way the things that we do export and particularly that is still minerals. That is coal, that is liquid natural gas and we need to rebuild local economies here. But we do have a thriving agricultural sector. We already feed, I think it's an additional 60 million people through our food exports. And that is something that we can continue to grow but we can't grow it unless we act on climate change, and we can't grow it unless we stop invasive fracking, which is impacting on more and more of our agricultural areas.
0: Yeah, well, I heard a German politician today talking about the possibility of using fracking to overcome reduction of gas to Germany from Russia may not have been a politician, may have been an academic. Now I think of it, but you just the, the the idea that people would reach for the grab rail of fracking in what is obviously a very difficult time for parts of the world in terms of energy supply. But you know, just think in 2022 that can never ever be an answer. No, it can't. And we're seeing also a mad rush to push,
1: once again, nuclear power. That's not part of it, you know, in terms of solutions. Coal isn't part of it. Carbon capture and storage, which is still being touted by the fossil fuel industry, isn't part of it. We have the technologies that work, and they are renewable storage and energy efficiency. And efficiency is a really important part of it because it's quite a job-rich solution. You know, that's retrofitting our homes. You're dealing with a heatwave now, and a lot of English homes aren't prepared for, for heat. A lot of Australian homes aren't prepared for cold. And, uh, you know, we all need to retrofit our homes to make them appropriate to the new conditions we're experiencing in the 21st century. So there's lots and lots of good things we can do, uh, but we need to sift out the things that work from the dangerous distractions like nuclear, like CCS and so on. Mm.
0: Uh, Claire, I know that Extinction Rebellion the other day launched... uh... A, a, a kind of polite attack on J.P. Morgan's offices in London. I don't want to get too much into that because there are possibly charges pending, but just so people can understand the kind of actions that you're taking in the UK, why would an organisation like J.P. Morgan be targeted by Extinction Rebellion? Uh,
2: because J.P. Morgan are the world's number one financer of fossil fuels. Um the people that took the action the other day are a group of healthcare professionals, so including GPs, um mental health professionals. Um and uh yeah, they um have made consistent campaigning effort towards that particular um financial organization. And um in light of the of the heat wave, I my understanding is that the people involved in that Felt it was necessary to do something that would um, escalate their action in terms of uh, raising the alarm. Obviously, we've had a group that's worked, you know, within XR for some time now called Money Rebellion, which was, um, you know, founded to focus on the impact of money on uh climate but also on uh, looking at the finance sector more broadly in terms of investments and where money flows are going and what they're causing and obviously the financial sector has a has a huge kind of global global reach and often there's a sort of dilemma presented to climate campaigners like are you focusing on um, Private companies? Are you focusing on the finance? Um, lots of people would say all eyes should be on the corporates. All eyes should be on the fossil fuel sector, for example. Um, but, but XR was founded on, you know, focusing on on the on the state really, um, originally, um, and calling for a, a refresh of our democracy to to create a democracy which is which you could really call democratic. Rather than what we have in representative, so-called representative democracy at the moment, which, as we know, is massively swung by by media that's that's controlled by uh, non-dom billionaires who don't pay any tax and have massive vested interests, and also, um, you know, led by people who also are either, as I said, pretty pretty corrupt or <clears throat> servicing um, their own vested interests, and so the inclusion of people in politics being sort of the primary focus of XR, it felt kind of necessary to shine a light on the finance sector, so as not to overlook that. Um, and I guess, um, you know, it, in 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 many ways, the the approach that we take to financing and the way that we run the economy is not just um, creating climate breakdown, but it's also um, massively culpable in. The push towards these ecological tipping points which are just as important some people i know who are kind of experts in in science are are way more worried about the scale of kind of mass death that's occurring in our ecosystems in our in our broader kind of biosphere than than they are even about the sort of um really really rapid and and kind of vicious onset of of the breakdown of our of our climate and so yeah to to take a, a a big view on that you can you can easily see through reports like the rainforest action network report banking on breakdown you can see clearly who are the primary offenders in terms of you know particularly a focus from the money rebellion actions that have happened is how much of these people invested since the paris agreement and so you can go and say well you know this particular bank has invested hundreds of billions this particular bank has invested 100 billion but it's but it's figures like that which is which is an as Antonio Guterres said you know is an absolutely uh deranged thing to do given the information that's before us so you know uh, what I've been kind of trying to think about in terms of explaining this stuff to people is how do you Take people on a logical journey to understand what's taking place. and it's not just um that we're in a kind of climate and ecological crisis. we're in an accountability crisis because nobody is actually held accountable for this stuff. It's okay to go and do this kind of thing and 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 what I think is is interesting in Britain at least um in the last few days, um, the environment agency who um, I've never stopped going on about this. But last year, they issued a press release, which is on the government website, you can look it up, it was called adapt or die. Um, you know, they've been coming out with some quite, um, let's say, uh, clear and, and forthright communications over the last um, year or a couple of years and they recently put out something about um sewage in the waterways in britain so you've probably seen the media story if you're here that um you know we're, we're pumping unprecedented like terrifying amounts of raw sewage into into our water systems and um water companies are private water companies are, are going completely unchecked in terms of um in terms of this stuff and the recent uh paper that came through the environment agency just a couple of days ago the one of the one of the first things that you can read in it is calling for the imprisonment of uh executives of those private companies who are not being held accountable and so uh, for me there's a yeah there's a real question about when we're gonna when we're gonna actually seek uh the means with which to to enact um a, a, a sense of some form of justice that can actually stop the harm, that can stop people from consistently making this worse for profit and basically getting away with it.
0: Yeah. It interests me, Cam, the Extent to which official bodies, and Claire has touched on that now, that official bodies, rather than fringe groups, rather than pressure groups, and I say that with all due respect to the likes of Extinction Rebellion and Friends of the Earth, who you respectively represent, but you've got mainstream bodies saying that this is an immediate and pressing issue, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for example, saying that we're on a, a fast track to disaster. That's a report that's been adopted by the United Nations. You've got their Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, who, as Claire says, is, is issuing dire warnings that we have to limit global warming to one and a half degrees. And it is now or never. So this is not any longer uh, the fringe Of anything, is it? This is mainstream thinking, this is authoritative bodies saying that we need to change. And Claire makes the point that we don't really know what happens next if we breach these limits, because it isn't a case simply that summers will become hotter, winters may become wetter and windier. We just don't know. What might happen to this planet if we exceed certain limits?
1: We've never been here before. That's absolutely correct. We don't know what is coming and the prospect of tipping points where something, you know, we we, we get a couple of heat waves, but then we just get heat waves. We really don't know. We have modelling. The modelling gets better year on year. But everything that is happening is happening as expected, but happening earlier, And that's what's really worrying. So, we are going into uncharted waters in terms of climate impacts. And it's really hard to see how business as usual can rise to that occasion. We need to rebuild our communities. So, in heat waves, you know, the first thing I learned in a heat wave was check on your neighbours, how are your neighbours going? Are they coping? You know, we need to rebuild community. We need public institutions that have been gutted through years of of cost-cutting measures. We need to rebuild them. They need to be fit for purpose for the 21st century. And that's everything from local government to state government. We need the global institutions. And unfortunately, there is a right-wing populist backlash against the so-called globalists, which are, you know, things like the UN. So there's this push to undermine the credibility of the international global entities. But, you know, we need to do all of that simultaneously. And I think as individuals, as activists, we we need to pick our spot where we feel we have the most power. And that might be locking onto something that might be building community resilience groups that might be lobbying our federal government. It's about finding our place. We can't do everything individually, but if we all individually do so, something and we do it strategically, then we do start to rebuild that social infrastructure that will see us through the changes that we can't really imagine at this point
0: what they are. Claire's also talking about a different way of approaching politics. And when you look at the vested interests around fossil fuel, the corporations that generate oil wells who generate gas, the big investment banks behind them, the people who they may sponsor or endorse in Parliament, and then the right-wing newspapers. And in the UK, you might count The the Sun, The Daily Mail, and The Telegraph amongst those. You know, th- there are very powerful institutions. But another level, they don't represent the majority of people they don't seem to so claire's arguing for a, a a radical shift in how we do politics as well and it's much more participatory as she envisages it it isn't leaving it to these people to run our world for us
1: Absolutely. We all need to engage at whatever level. And often I quote Rebecca Solnit, the author from the United States, who wrote a wonderful book called A Paradise Built in Hell, which looked at how communities respond after natural disasters. And what she found is engaged communities always do better. So it's about increasing participation in local groups, in civil society groups, in ENGOs and so on. We know that atomisation and isolation and cynicism about institutions never serves the good of the people. So a solution is the, the governments won't do it for us, the corporations won't do it for us. That is part of the solution, but we need to build a local connection and connectivity and solidarity. And we also need to build our grassroots power. So it's, it's an ecological approach. You've got to uh, work simultaneously on multitudes of levels.
0: Claire, your action in London attacking, very politely it should be said, J.P. Morgan's offices, windows were smashed, windows were broken and it may well be that there are charges arising from that but uh, according to your press release anyway, great care was made to ensure that nobody was within any close distance who might be hurt by that. You know, it was a kind of a symbolic protest. Now as far as I can tell, And given what you said about JP Morgan, this clearly, you know, a significant action from your point of view. So far as I can tell, that hasn't picked up any traction by the mainstream press in the UK. And I just wonder how frustrating that is for you, because you're committed to non violent action. But at the same time. You recognise this is a matter of planetary life and death, an existential question, and you're going very politely about it, about protesting about it, and it seems as though the media at least shrugs its shoulders and ignores it.
2: Yeah, um, well they well they they do, and I you know I think um, it's uh, it's extremely difficult to to get cut through in um a media which is you know as we've explored majority like massively um captured and and really completely uh, i would say still quite distracted um <clears throat> you know i um I've been invited recently to go and speak to people in the media about whether or not um, the government is is doing enough to meet its net zero targets. Um, and, you know, within my consideration about how to approach that conversation, I have to think about how much should I allow myself to talk about what they're asking me to talk about, which is like the minutia of whether or not we're meeting this milestone or, or or that target which by the way we're utterly failing to do um or how much should we be talking about tipping points and the breaking points that that we're obviously at which are irreversible and and then try to get something through the that that cuts through that gets people to understand this isn't like as you say just about um a bit of difficult weather but it's about like the collapse of our global food systems, which are run like a tight elastic band, they're run on like a just-in-time kind of delivery mentality, which means that they're extremely fragile, actually. Um, and also, uh, you know, the, the the bigger question here, which is which is which is coming through, which is like, how do you defeat cynicism? Basically, like, how can Popular people's movements for people to have a say when you know obviously what we've what we've been living with and under so far has created something which is completely uh, beyond unacceptable. Um, how do you bring people out of that? And for me, there's there's something about. Um, doing these kinds of acts of direct action, which are intended, yes, sometimes they're materially impactful and sometimes they are symbolically impactful. Ideally they're both, but how those things can create um, a a sense of connection for the people who witness them and then understand like, this is, this is the situation that we're in. And I think there's a, there's an enormous power to a group of um, healthcare professionals going and taking an act like that, which they know very well could see them, um, you know, facing a, a jail sentence in this country um, in order to, to, to get this point made. And I would, um, you know, I- invite people to read the um, the climate fiction novel um, Ministry for the Future, which um, basically de- depicts um, a future where people start to do climate um, terrorism and I would say that you know uh, a, a movement like ours which has been completely dedicated to non-violence and has shown a brilliant nonviolent discipline um, you know is is now some in some quarters it gets it gets criticized because well why are you being so polite why you why yeah. are you being so well, at, nice you know
0: at, at some at some point people will ask who are the terrorists in that scenario who are yeah. the terrorists? You know, are they the people who might resort to violence or are the terrorists the people who are in very plush offices earning shareholder dividends but wreaking havoc on the planet?
2: Yeah, and I think increasingly people are going to start to ask these questions and I hope that we can find a way through it which is, you know, as, as uh, civil and compassionate and 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 caring and and peaceful as possible but you have to imagine the future that we're entering is one of of very deep trauma you know fire anger massive uh in quotes natural disasters which which we know are not going to be entirely natural they're going to be um you know increasingly attributed to 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 man-made impacts um there's a there's a climate um Scientist, well, uh, like a, an, e- I believe she's like an ecological economist um, as as well, but called uh, Julia Steinberger, and she wrote this blog post recently, which I really recommend people check out. It's about, um, uh, she visited a school to talk to some young people about climate change, and she did this talk to them and said, you know, here's what I can tell you about climate and what's happening. And at the end, she she said she, she sort of couldn't really read the room. She couldn't understand what was going on. They looked – she couldn't quite understand what was the vibe, what was, what was going on. Um, and one of the students stood up and said, we know all this. Like, you know, how dare you come and tell us all this stuff that we already know. We don't need to understand climate. We already understand what's going on with the climate. We need adults to tell us how power works. And mm-hmm. to me – that's then takes you to the the big question, right? Which is like, why, if the majority of people don't want this to happen, is it happening? And um, you only have to look at the, the Chilean constitution that's being written, you know, um, that, that calls for a serious address to the climate and ecological crisis or Citizens' Assembly that happened here, the one that happened in France, there's one that's just happened, I think, in Austria, they all say the same thing. There was a global assembly that happened um, as a as a first experiment to bring together um, people randomly selected from all over the world to get like a, a collection of people that could demographically represent the, the global human family and ask them what should be done about this situation after they've all been um, able to sit in um, assembly and listen to all of the facts all of the information get a total 360 degree understanding of the of the context and and what they're facing and they always say the same things they come out with things that say you know the the natural living systems upon which life totally relies deserve rights like human rights we need mother earth rights they say things like we want governance to be done by gender-balanced communities of people, so more women basically represented in these things. We want more marginalised people to be included. We want to see that there's, like, inclusion in people trying to work out what to do about this stuff. And we basically do not want to terminate our societies and civilizations for the benefit of a tiny number of people who are making enormous profit. Like, actually, the majority of people all agree, but the problem is is one of like questioning why is the power dynamic set up in such a way that this feels insurmountable when the truth is you know, not to address this seriously is is complete is a complete derangement. And you hear people in the Tory leadership race in this country saying things like, I would address net zero, but not if it bankrupted people. But if you don't address it, you will bankrupt the entire the entire country so it's th- that's a, it's a nonsense argument isn't it so it's is a nonsense thing to say like we're in a predicament this is why a lot of experts in this field use the word predicament now because it's not a problem it's not a complex issue it's a predicament and a predicament is a thing where you don't have a really good obvious option so we're in a position now which has gone so far down the road that we are as i've said recently trying to trying to wrestle with least worst outcomes that's what we're trying to do here we're trying to like mitigate the worst case and we and we desperately need to to adapt to be able to take best care of one another as an entire world family as we enter into a a, a really really destabilized um uh, world and we and we don't have any there's no guidebook for this and there's also no philosophical precedent for thinking that you are giving a worse life to the next generation than the one that came before it because the, the notion of human progress is now it, it, you know as we've as we've lived with it sort of post enlightenment western thinking that's that's gone that's over and people need to i think accept accept that there are some limits now on on what we what we can do and work out how to prime our sort of social systems and the way that we organize ourselves and the way we work together so that we're really centered on 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 peace and care and solidarity and uh you know think deeply about about the way that the way that we want to live in light of the fact that actually as as we know the majority of people are good kind compassionate and loving beings so you know that that seems to fly in the face of Of a lot of what I grew up with as a as a as a younger person in this society. But so it's a total paradigm shift that's required. You know, there's it's nothing it's nothing less we'll do.
0: Cam in Australia, how do campaigners like yourself manage to ensure that this issue is front and centre of the news agenda?
1: Um, I think one of the key things we have learned is that we, we can't ghettoise ourselves. You know, there's a danger that green activists, climate activists, we think we're right, and that really annoys people. We actually need to listen and we need to build relationships. So many of the campaigns that we've won in recent years, one comes to mind, we have a permanent ban on fracking in the state that I live in. It's even enshrined in our state's constitution. We did that by forging alliances with often quite conservative voting rural communities. Um, So we need to keep coming out of the the realms that we live in and make people where they are. And the fact of the matter is, as Claire said, most people are good. Most people will do the right thing if they can, but we're all locked into a system that to a very large degree is defined by larger forces. So we keep thinking, use tactics that put the pressure back on the blockers and back on the the fossil fuel companies and back on the investors that are backing the wrong sorts of projects and keep wedging them away from the rest of the community. So we think that that form of organising, for instance, there's a a very well-known group in Australia called Lock the Gate, which is building alliances with rural communities. We need to keep finding ways to wedge off the blockers, the deniers, and the vested interests from everyone else and we want to be in that camp with everyone else so i think that we need to constantly be reflecting on the sort of tactics we use and um tactics that may, that are based on building relationship and that are based on finding mutual ground based on mutual respect are really the effective ones that we've seen in australia
0: yeah. And Cam, I'm sure you're aware that this is not just a particular issue at the moment in the United Kingdom, where we are going through unprecedented heat, but this is an issue in Portugal. It's a por- uh, an issue in Italy, where I've read reports about grain harvests becoming problematic. France, Germany as well. You know, this is a Europe wide problem. Europe fully aware of the issues in in australia is there a sense in which this feels like a global moment a a a time when perhaps people will collectively say we do need to address this issue as a matter of urgency
1: i hope so and i think if you're paying attention you can't but help to join the dots. I was just reading a news story that said more than a thousand people had already died in Spain and Portugal as a result of the heat wave. You know, like it's very hard when you're directly impacted in your family to ignore the facts. And the minute you step back and look at the bigger picture, you know, the the heat waves that have been occurring in places like Iran and Iraq, the fires that are raging in Siberia and the north of Alaska, you know, the heat waves and the bushfires, the wildfires in in Western Europe, it's very hard not to see it. Um, Uh, in terms of climate change. So I do remain hopeful uh, that we are moving in the right direction. Here in Australia today, the the government has just released the State of the Environment Report. It's as grim as you would expect. All our ecosystems are going the wrong way in terms of their health. We're losing species left, right and centre. You know that the grim reality is that it is very grim, but at the same time, I feel that the gravitational centre of politics is shifting and it's shifting to much more reflect what average people want, and what average people want is a sustainable future and a good life for them and their community.
0: Let's hope you're right. Cam, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate you joining us as well. Uh, Climate change activist, campaigns coordinator for Friends of the Earth in Australia, and volunteer firefighter as well. Thank you very much, Cam. Thank you to Claire as well from Extinction Rebellion. Great to speak to you as always, Claire. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Uh, uh Claire we were chatting earlier by the way what well, what do you reckon then better than Jeremy Vine
2: oh yeah it's much better than Jeremy <laughs> Vine coming on here thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Jeremy. No offence. Um, uh, it's all no, right. It he can
0: take it. He can take it. He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, we were, just to explain that we were chatting early, just sometimes about the kind of the the superficial debates that you get drawn into, and I, I hope we've uh, that hasn't been the case tonight. It certainly hasn't been. So.
2: Well, it's it's an experience that doesn't feel like don't look up. So you've
0: <laughs> I call that a
2: success. Adrian. Yeah, that's a
0: low <laughs> that's a low bar, that's to be said, but you know i'll take it uh claire thank you so much as well claire thanks love extinction rebellion i'm adrian goldberg and this has been byline radio or if you're listening on catch up the byline times podcast funded by subscriptions to the byline times it's a wonderful monthly newspaper that talks truth to power you can find out how to subscribe by checking out our website bylinetimes.com and don't forget as well check out bylines app the bylines app on your smartphone which opens up the world of our regional bylines
2: as well i'm adrian goldberg thanks for listening i'll see you next time cheers now Bye bye